Amen. You may be seated and go ahead and take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. A love that will not let me go. I am His forever. That's why redeeming love has been our theme and will be one in glory. Just constantly, continually singing of the redemption that we have in Christ. And that redemption is made possible by the cross. Obviously, we need the cross of Christ for our redemption. But it is secured in the resurrection, through the resurrection and by the resurrection. We've been asking ourselves um, post-Easter, post-Resurrection Sunday, we've continually been asking through these verses that we've been studying, what does the resurrection change? What does it change? Is it just a date on the calendar, Easter Sunday, we celebrate, we move on? Or is it something that we celebrate every single day? If Jesus has not been raised, then nothing matters. We've been studying that in Family Bible Hour. If Jesus has not been raised, we have no life in Christ. We are of all people most to be pitied, and nothing in this life matters. But if and since Jesus has been raised, then nothing else matters. Nothing else matters but the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its implications for our lives. The resurrection changes everything. We've looked at how it changes our relationships with God, with Jesus, with one another as the family of God. It changes our relationship to the world. Now we are on mission in the world, and we have been given amazing provisions which will enable us to carry out that mission. Last week, we looked at the provision of peace that we are given through the resurrection. Through the resurrection, We are given the provision of power with the Holy Spirit, and we have been given the provision of a perfected proclamation. You can go to people, and you don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to be nervous. You don't have to be shy. You don't have to wonder, well, I think your sins are forgiven. I'm not sure if your sins are forgiven. I, I hope they are. You can say, if you believe in Jesus Christ and you turn from your sins and trust by faith in him alone, your sins have been forgiven you. But as we said last time, that beautiful sermon that Jesus preached, there was one person missing. It was Thomas. He wasn't there for that sermon. And he's struggling. And what we're going to see this morning is how our Savior interacts with unbelief. So let's pick it back up in verse 20, or I'm sorry, verse 24. We'll pick it back up in verse 24, John chapter 20, verse 24, all the way through the end of the chapter. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, locked, and he stood in their midst and he said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger, see my hands, reach here with your hand and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. 
Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Father, we are an unbelieving people. Um, All of the disciples were. They all doubted. They all struggled. They were fearful. They locked themselves in the upper room, not once, but twice. And we are uh, no better than they. We all struggle to believe aspects of your word, to, to genuinely believe. That's why we study your word. That's why in our small groups we're going through KFCA, knowledge, faith. What does it look like to genuinely believe? It would look like a different character and a different actions if we genuinely believe the knowledge that we have. Oh, we have so much knowledge. And that's a, a huge answer to prayer. That's a huge blessing At this church, we have an immense amount of knowledge, but with that blessing comes a warning. We need to go back through the knowledge that we have accumulated by your grace, and we need to ask ourselves, are there places in our knowledge of your word and of your person and of your work and of your demands that we don't functionally believe? We have a hard time genuinely believing by faith. Father, this morning is the morning to say, I believe, help my unbelief. I will believe. So God, we ask that your Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, come in a powerful way to convict us of our unbelief. We all struggle with it. There are all places in in every one of our hearts, there are places where we struggle. So even as we saw last week, the provision of power through the Holy Spirit, may he do the work that he loves to do to point us to Christ and to preach to our souls this morning, he is better than anything this world has to offer. May we see that clearly. May we savor him for all that he is for us, all that he's done and all that he promises to be for us. And may he be glorified in our time this morning. We pray it in his precious and holy name. Amen. In these verses, we see just two main points. We see skepticism shown and evidence of skepticism and skepticism silenced. So we're going to see Thomas on display with a very skeptical, unbelieving heart. And we're going to see how the Savior interacts with that to silence his unbelief. Verse 24, we will see skepticism shown. Verses 24 through 25. Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus. Didymus just means Uh, twin, he has a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Thomas wasn't there. Remember I said last week, it's never a good idea to miss Sundays. You just never know what you're going to miss on a Sunday. Who knows what's going to happen this Sunday, this Lord's Day, who knows? I would just say, don't ever miss a Sunday. It's not a good idea to miss a Sunday. And Thomas would tell you that from heaven, don't miss a Sunday. (laughs) Lord's Days are important. So he's there in the upper room, He wasn't there when Jesus came, but he's with the other disciples. Verse 25, and they say to him, we have seen the Lord. That's all we have from John's pen. But you can imagine this scene. 
all the disciples hanging out in the upper room. Jesus shows up, preaches an amazing sermon to them, and then he leaves, and then Thomas shows up. You can imagine this scene, just fumbling over each other to try and grab Thomas. Why weren't you here? The Savior showed up. He's real. We saw the imprints. We saw his hands. We were able to, he looked like a ghost. He, he, we touched him. He's not a ghost, but he's like a ghost. And he breathed on us. We don't know what that is. He just went, and we thought that was kind of weird, but he just rose from the dead, so we're okay. He, he's alive, Thomas. You should have been here. He's alive. And you can see them saying, where were you? Why'd you miss this? Everybody was here. Why weren't you here? Why wasn't Thomas there? The Bible doesn't tell us why he wasn't there, and I'm glad that it doesn't. Because that tells us the ultimate reason for why Thomas was not there is irrelevant. Just like the ultimate reason for why we would miss gathering together is irrelevant. But just to guess, we all process emotions differently, right? We all process life differently. And we know Thomas's character. We know his makeup. We know his personality from the Bible. I'm guessing that he just wanted to be alone. I'm guessing he just wanted to be alone. Why? Thomas is dominated by his own negativity. In the Gospels, we see a man overcome by his own negativity. He is a pessimist through and through. He is the consummate Eeyore. If you think about Eeyore and you think his tail falls off and Christopher Robin's super happy and Pooh Bear's always happy and he says, well, just tack this thing back on. You'll be good. He goes, why? It's just going to fall off again. Just, oh, oh bother. It's just going to fall off again. That's Thomas, right? Thomas, remember John 11. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go to Bethany. Let's go, Jesus says, because we're going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Look, I have the power to raise a man from the dead. And what is Thomas's reaction? Yep, let's go, because we're all going to die. Like, let's just, we're all going to go die. He is the epitome of a pessimist. He struggles with his own negativity. So, what happens after the crucifixion? I, I can just see him saying, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they all flee away, he's one of the twelve that flees away, I can just see him looking at the soldiers carrying Jesus off, hiding behind some bush, watching what they do to him. And he goes, I knew it. I knew this was going to happen. I knew this was going to, I knew, I, I, I followed him. I got my hopes up. I knew he was going to let me down. I shouldn't have let him let me down. If you're a pessimist, you know that you carefully guard your feelings of hope. I'm going to be very careful. I have hope here, and I don't want anybody touching this, and so I'm not going to engage in much because I don't want my hope to be touched. If you're a pessimist, your life verse is Proverbs 13, 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, so I'm never going to have hope because then I'll never have a sick heart. And then every once in a while, if you're a pessimist, you step outside and you go, okay. I'm going to trust. I'm going to hope. And you take that first step outside of the cave of your pessimism, and you take one step out, and life is really challenging, and it will let you down, 
and it lets you down and you retreat back in and it'll take double the time to step out of that cave of pessimism. See, I knew it. I just knew I was going to be let down. One of the best tests of whether or not you are a pessimistic person, we can be honest with ourselves, encourage you to ask other people, do you see me as realistic, pessimistic, optimistic, cynical? But one of the best tests is do you find yourself irritated by people who are optimistic? Do you find yourself irritated by people who see the glass is half full? And you're like, man, it's not. I see it's half empty and you're a fool and I don't like you anymore because it's clearly half full. And it's clearly half empty. You see it as half full. Are you a pessimistic person? If you are, then the last thing that you want to do is go to a party where everybody is hopeful, happy, ecstatic, joyful, and that's the upper room. Everybody's just, this is awesome, we saw the Lord. And Thomas shows up and goes, I shouldn't have come here. <laughs> I, you guys have seen things, you just want him to be real. Everywhere Thomas is turning, it looks like hope is there, joy is there. So it's not a happy place for Thomas to be, and I think that's why he explodes in verse 25. They say, we've seen the Lord. And in the white space in scripture with our sanctified imagination, you can hear their conversation. And I think he says, unless I see, he just blurts out, he explodes. Everybody stop talking. Unless I see, unless I see, not going to listen to your opinions. You guys are optimistic. You guys are just out of your minds. Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails. And I put my finger into the place of the nails and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I will not believe. That's a double negative in the original, incredibly emphatic. I never, no, never will believe. To use our vernacular, southern vernacular, I ain't never going to believe. I ain't never going to believe. Unless I see. Notice he says, I see the nail prints in his hands. And he skips the feet altogether. No, no, hands, feet, side. He just says hands and side. Why? Because if we get hands, we get, he was crucified. Don't need to worry about the feet. And if we get side, we know he truly died, right? No swoon theory here. He didn't faint. Remember, this was the soldier thrusting that spear into his side right into his heart. There's no way that he would have still been alive. I want to know that he was good and dead, so I know that he's good and alive. But I'm never going to believe. We label him as the doubter, right? Doubting Thomas. And bless his heart, I really think that's a little too kind. Listen to this language. This isn't doubting Thomas. This is defying Thomas. I will never believe. Never will I ever believe. He's determined, he's skeptical, he's disbelieving, he's incredulous. There is a kind of doubting, let me just say very clearly, there's a kind of doubting that is honest in its doubts. There's a kind of doubting that's a struggle. I'm really struggling with this. I, I want to believe, but I'm struggling. There's a kind of doubt like that. And that's the kind of doubt that I believe Jude tells us, have mercy on those who are doubting. Don't condemn them. Don't rebuke them. Have mercy. 
But I do not think that this is honest doubt, seeking information to clarify truth. I think this is defiance. He's not seeking information. The information was around him. He had Lazarus raised from the dead. He had the resurrection uh, of Lazarus. And then Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. If you come to me, you will never die, though you die. He had the predictions that Jesus gave of his coming death and his resurrection. He has the mouth of two or three witnesses that have said, we have identified this is the Lord. He was here. We saw him. He has both the men and the women. I don't think that he's in an intellectual dilemma. I think he's clearly unwilling to believe. Notice he does not say, I really wish I could see him because I just don't think I can believe unless I did. I'm struggling here and I'm struggling. I don't think I could believe. He says, I will not believe. And look at, I, I believe there's a, an air of arrogance about him. He dictates the terms that Jesus has to meet in order to win over his belief. Look, if Jesus wants to prove to me that he's real, here's what he has to do. I've got hoops and he's got to jump through them. I need to see, I need to touch, I need to place my hand in his side. The creature never has a right to demand anything from the creator. And yet we see that every day. Under the banner of intellectualism, postmodernism is just an immoral arrogance that's camouflaged as this discerning scholarship. Just absolute defiance. So I don't think that he's doubting Thomas. I think that he is skeptical. He is not believing. As one pastor says, he is unbelief cemented in a concrete slab of unwillingness. He's stuck. So here's my question. How is Jesus going to respond to him? We know he's going to. How does Jesus respond to unbelief? We've seen skepticism shown. Now skepticism silenced. This is in verse 26. After eight days, my Bible says after eight days, yours might say after a week or a week later. Um, That's not uh, conflicting accounts. That's just a, a very literal Jewish reckoning. They would start with the day that they were in. So Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that's eight days. They count them all. It's a week later, but you can also say it's eight days. And it's been a week. It's been a week. Just think of how painful this week must have been for Thomas. Hangs out with the disciples. We've seen the Lord. What what does Thomas's second reaction? First is, I'm not believing that. And then he leaves. And what's his second reaction? What just in sanctified imagination, put yourself in his sandals and think about this week. Why didn't he show up to me? He's God. If he's God, he could have showed up to me. Did I just waste my life following this guy? Are all of my friends now crazy? They thought they saw the resurrected Lord. That's impossible. What am I going to do with my life now? Sorrow, despair, depression, anger, bitterness. Just a week filled with rough emotions. And I think every day, every night as he's going to bed, he's thinking, see, I knew they were lying. Because if he was really alive, he would have showed himself by now. If he was really alive, he would have showed himself to me. 
Think of how many people in this world say the same thing. If there really is a God, he'd show himself to me. If there really is a God, he'd show himself. How's Jesus going to react? Thomas, in the upper room, Jesus comes, the doors are shut, same word that we saw earlier from last week, shut, locked, he does the ghosty thing again, even though he's not a ghost, he does the ghosty thing, goes in through the walls, stands in their midst, again, not outlier, in the middle of them, same greeting, peace be with you, and then he turns to Thomas, and he speaks. Now, we're hard on Thomas, and I think that uh, rightfully so, biblically so, I think there's biblical warrant for it. But just before we listen to Jesus' response, notice the disciples are not that amazing. The other disciples, right? They're in the upper room, and the doors are what? They're locked. Now, I understand locked the first time because our Savior died. We don't know if he's alive. We don't think he's alive. And we're afraid that people are going to come take us away and kill us. But they saw him. He walks through walls. He speaks to them. He gives them the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit that's going to come in Acts chapter 1. He's just levels them. And they pass that on to Thomas. He's alive. We've seen him. And yet we got to lock the door. We have a guy who dies, rises from the dead on his own power, walks through walls. He's our master. He's back from the dead, and we're still terrified, still fearful. And also, what Jesus is going to do with Thomas, he had already done with the disciples. Now, they didn't ask for it. They didn't demand it, but they struggled to believe. They were doubting. They struggled. A a couple of them totally believed he's alive. We didn't see him, but he's alive. So while we are hard on Thomas, we have to understand the disciples and all of us struggle with the exact same thing. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 27, he turns to Thomas and he says, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side. Do you catch what Jesus does here? Do you hear what he says? You have to kind of have two parallel visions to be able to see, but you have to overlay Thomas's demands on top of Jesus's answer. What's Thomas' demand? Verse 25, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails. What does Jesus say? Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it in my side. What did Thomas say? If I put my hand into his side, Jesus is answering every single one of Thomas's demands. And he says, see, middle of verse 27, reach here with your finger and see, examine. Some of your Bibles might say examine. That's a much better word. Look closely. Make sure it's real. Take your time. This is the glory of Jesus. This is the glory of Jesus in this moment is that he in his omniscience, knew every one of Thomas's demands and in his kindness reaches out to Thomas and says, I'll gladly answer those. You have demands, you're my creation, and you've demanded something of me, and I will gladly humble myself to meet those demands. When I read this passage, 
I, I have a certain level of frustration on the Savior's behalf. I kind of think, wait, time out. Hasn't Jesus humbled himself enough? Hasn't he suffered enough? Hasn't he sacrificed enough? Aren't we done with the humiliation? Aren't we done with the serving? Wash his disciples' feet. Take care of them. He loves them. He goes to the cross. He dies. He rises from the dead. He still loves them. He doesn't call them fools or dopes. He says, peace be with you. You're my friends. But aren't we done? (laughs) Like, can't the Savior just be exalted in glory and we worship him? Here he is still humbling himself. What would you have done if you could hear the demands that somebody would make of you? I don't know if you've ever had that before. Somebody says, unless you do this, 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 and this, we're not friends. Unless you do this, 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 and this, I'm not hanging out with you. You just kind of go, okay. Like, I, I don't really need to be in that position of some power play. How much more so Jesus? What would you have done if you were Jesus? I'll tell you what I would have done. I would have said, Thomas, I heard everything you said. I heard it all because I'm God and you don't believe that. You demanded things of me. Some of these disciples didn't need to see me and they believed. You've got problems, Thomas. I would have made him suffer for daring to demand from the God of the universe. And brothers and sisters, that's why I am not the Savior And that's why I need the Savior. Because I would have responded in anger. The conquering Lion of Judah is a humble lamb yet again, humbly serving his friend. Thomas, you have demands? I'll meet all of them. I'll gladly meet them. I want to show you I'm real, I'm alive. And yet the sacrificial lamb is the conquering lion and he will not allow this unbelief to go unaddressed. So he says, reach here with your finger, see my hands, reach here with your hand, put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. There's a really interesting way that Jesus says this in the original language. Literally, it would be Thomas, stop becoming an unbeliever. Stop becoming an unbeliever and instead start being a believer. Stop this unwillingness to believe, Thomas. Thomas, you are on a path that if you walk down this path, you will end in determined disbelief. So stop becoming an unbeliever and start believing. But notice where that command is given in relation to the way that he has kindly addressed Thomas with every demand met. This is the way our God works. Grace, then a command that brings about grace. Grace. Jesus, in his mercy and grace, gives a command to Thomas. Look, examine, see for yourself. And those commands, full of grace and mercy, lead to another command. Now that you've seen, stop your unbelief. This is exactly the way that grace works. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Salvations come through the grace of God. Now change. 
It's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Thomas, I'll give you grace. I'll meet those demands. Now change. And what does Thomas do? Verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. No Jewish man would ever use these words if they were not addressing God. You can't say that this is an exclamation of, how can this be? That's, Jehovah's Witnesses say that, right? They say, if you, they don't believe that Jesus is God, he's created being, lesser God. And they say, oh, Thomas isn't actually saying, my Lord and my God. He's, for all intents and purposes, cursing. In utter exclamation of, how is this possible? Number one, Jesus would have corrected him for taking the Lord's name in vain. And number two, for worshiping Jesus as God, even though he's not God. But number three, it just, it totally misses historically what a Jewish man would be meaning when he says this, my Lord and my God. He's saying, you are who you claim to be. You are Lord, you are master. I demanded things of you and now I own I humbly submit myself under your leadership. You are a gracious master, and I want to follow you as your slave. And you are God. You are Lord, you are master, and you are God. You are deity. And why? Why does he say that? What changes such that Thomas is able to look at Jesus and say, I believe, I get it. I think, number one, the sight, Jesus is going to say that. You've seen me and you believe. I think, number two, the omniscience of Jesus. I think that that would have floored Thomas when Jesus says, peace be with you. And then he zeroes in on Thomas and he says, I got three things to ask of you. Would you please look at the imprints in my hands? Go ahead and touch them if you want and reach into my side. Do those ring a bell? I think Thomas would say, how did you know? How, how did you know? Well, because you are God. You are my God. And number three, I think his authority. So the sight of Jesus changes Thomas. The omniscience of Jesus changes Thomas. And then the authority of Jesus. For Jesus to say, I can command you to do something, and then I graciously ask you through that command, stop becoming an unbeliever. Start believing. He willingly says, you are Lord, you are God, but you're not just Lord and God. You are my Lord. You are my God. I love you. I would gladly submit to you, serve you. No Jewish man would ever use those words if they were not addressing God. And no one is a Christian who does not confess this of Jesus and live upon it. Nobody is a Christian who does not confess Jesus is my Lord and he is my God and live accordingly to it. So, we might think Jesus answered Thomas's demands. He did we might think, well, is it okay then to demand things of Jesus? Is it okay to say, unless you do this for me, Jesus, I won't do that? Is it okay to do that? And I think we would emphatically say, no, Jesus is no one's genie. He's everyone's God, so you can't demand things of him. And I think that's why Jesus is going to say what he says in verse 29. Jesus says to Thomas, because you have seen me, have you believed? You believe because you saw me. And there's no condemnation of that. There's no rebuke of that. This is not, you believe because you saw me. Others will believe when they don't see me. And they're more blessed than you. That's not what this is saying. Thomas, you're blessed because you believe. 
But Thomas, I want you to know, and I want everybody reading the Gospel of John to know, I'm glad that you believed after seeing me, but that's not going to be the norm. That's not going to be the norm. People are going to make demands of me, and I might not fulfill them. There are going to be many people who don't see and yet still believe. I think that that's a reference to the disciples when he says, blessed are they who did not see. There were those in this room that did not see yet believed. But Peter's going to bend that out to all of us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Jesus says, you will be blessed for believing. Thomas, you're blessed for believing and you saw and that helped you to believe. You're still blessed because you believe, but Thomas, that's not going to be the norm for everybody else. They're going to have to believe without seeing and it's possible too. That's the real question here. How is it possible to believe in Jesus without seeing him? Can we? Why should we? He says, you'll be blessed. You'll be blessed if you believe. Blessed are those who don't see, but still believe. Just write it down, mark it on your soul. Belief brings blessing. In what way will you be blessed? In what way are we blessed by believing? Let's let John answer that for us. Go back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Belief brings blessing. What blessing? You're adopted into the family of God. Belief brings blessing. Chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Belief brings blessing. What kind of blessing? Eternal life. So you're adopted into God's family and you're given eternal, everlasting life. Chapter 3, verse 18. He who believes in me is not judged. He who does not believe in me has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Belief brings blessing. What blessing? You're delivered from condemnation. So you have eternal life and you have no more fear of future wrath. Chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. This is what Tim prayed for uh, over Sam this morning. He's going out to give um, physical food to quench physical hunger in order to point people to the one that can quench your spiritual hunger. Jesus alone can do that. Satisfy you to the depth of your being, to the depth of your soul. So what does belief bring? It brings blessing. What kind of blessing? Spiritual satisfaction. Adoption into God's family, eternal life, deliverance from condemnation, spiritual satisfaction. And verse 40, one more verse. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Just like Jesus was raised up, 
we will experience a resurrected body because of belief. Belief brings blessing. Belief brings the blessing of being adopted into God's family, receiving eternal everlasting life, being delivered from the fear of future wrath, spiritual satisfaction where you can live every single day with joy and satisfaction as you feast on all that Jesus is for us. And just like Jesus, we will experience resurrection from the dead because belief brings blessing. So Jesus says to the disciples, Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. That would be us. We don't see Jesus, but we believe in him. So here's my question. Will you take Jesus at his word today? Will you believe him and what he says in his word? Will you do what he tells you to do, no matter the cost, no matter what you feel that you might lose? Belief brings blessing. If you don't, then you won't find any of those blessings. But if you do, you will find joy that's unimaginable. Maybe you sit here and you say, man, I just struggle with belief. I struggle with faith. It's hard for me to believe. And I think all of us are in that camp to a certain degree. It's hard to believe certain things. If faith is hard for you, if you say, just, this is hard to believe. I just want to challenge your thinking. Faith is way more common than you would realize you're just more selective in your application of faith. Faith is not foreign. It's not a foreign experience to any of us. It's a daily way of living our lives. You had faith this morning when you got into the car and you personally turned on an explosion. You had faith that that explosion would stay in the engine and not all over you. You had faith. And you did not think, I don't think, that you thought, once about this. Before, okay, please, Lord, don't blow up. Oh, phew. Like, we just, it's happened, it's, we're okay. You have faith in the chairs. that I, I don't think, other than the back snapping your fingers, I don't think anybody examines their chair to go, I don't know if this one, we should move. I, I don't, we don't, we just sit down. We have faith in employment. You're not going to Wake up tomorrow morning, pick up the cell phone, dial the number of your work, and go, hey, do I still have a job? Do I have to come into work today? Oh, okay, good. Like, you don't do that on a daily basis. Why? You have faith that your employer made a contract with you, you made a contract with them, you're good to go. You have faith in relationships. You have faith in the bank. When was the last time that you went to your bank? Just go to Chase without any slip of paper and just say, I want to know if my money's still here. Is my money still here? Well, let's get your, just, I, I want to know. I, I don't, I'm struggling to believe. Like, we just believe. We believe things that are trustworthy enough to place our faith in them. Time and time again, they've proven that they are trustworthy. We believe them. We take them at faith. We're okay. So here's what I want to say. All of us are far more capable of faith than we realize. And all of us place our faith in objects that give us security and comfort and are temporary at best. We're all happy to place faith in those things. So are you able to make the connection then to say, I'll take God at his word. I believe, I have faith. Because these are eternal securities. These are eternal comforts. They're not temporary. What parts of God's word are you struggling to believe? I would just 
encourage you to share that with somebody. You will be met with grace. If you say, man, I'm struggling. I, be- I believe the gospel. I believe these things. But there's this one passage that I just, I'm struggling to believe if this is real or if this would really happen or if this is possible in my life. I'm just struggling. I think one of the biggest places that we all struggle to believe God's word is that change is actually possible. It's kind of, I'm, I'm just stuck and I'm stuck and I'll just be stuck for the rest of my life and that's why I'm excited about heaven because I'm just stuck. Jesus did not die on a cross, rise from the dead, and give you the same spirit that raised him from the dead in order for you to stay stuck. He didn't. And the Bible says that change is possible through the power of the gospel, through the grace of God, and through the Holy Spirit. But do you believe that? If you don't believe that, you're not going to press yourself into the disciplines that will help you to grow. You're just going to say, yeah, I'm stuck. So encourage one another. Go to one another and say, hey, here's a place where I'm struggling to believe. Can you encourage me? Can you help me? How does this play itself out in your life? What parts of God's word are you struggling to believe? Back in John chapter 20, Jesus said, Blessed are those who didn't see, who won't see, who don't see, and they still believe. The question that we have to ask ourselves is how will anybody believe when they can't see Jesus? How is this going to happen? He says they're going to believe, And they're blessed for believing, but how is that going to happen? And I think John wants you to ask that question. I think John's hoping that you'll ask that question because I think he wants to answer that question. He figures you're going to ask that question. And so he says in verse 30, Therefore, because people will believe even though they haven't seen Jesus, and because they'll be blessed by believing even though they haven't seen Jesus, how are they going to believe when he hasn't been seen? Therefore, Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe. You're not going to be able to see Jesus, but I'm writing so that you will believe. You can believe in him through the testimony of those who have seen him. You may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. We're going to take those two verses and look in depth next week at what those two verses mean But how can you come to have faith in Jesus without seeing him? The answer is, as Paul would say, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You don't have to see him to believe him. You can see him in the scriptures and believe him. And belief always brings blessing. Father, we thank you so much for an amazing picture of a gracious Savior. This is why we gather on Sundays. We just want to see the glory of Jesus. And we've seen it yet again. We see the glory of our Savior who reaches out in grace and not condemnation to a man who is worthy of condemnation but is given mercy. God, what amazing grace. You are such a kind Savior. And as we've seen your glory, as we've tasted of the glory of the one who would so graciously humble himself yet again to serve. And even now in heaven, exalted on high, you still serve your people, praying for them as we've been studying in Hebrews, intercessory work as our great high priest. You still serve us. Unbelievable grace. And if the God of the universe would gladly, joyfully, willingly serve us, humble himself to serve us, How much more should we as creature to creature serve each other? 
the gap between creator and creature is infinite. And you condescended. You humbled yourself to meet where, us where we are. May we do that with one another. The implications of these verses are so far-reaching. But for this morning, Father, I pray that your spirit would encourage our hearts. I believe, help my unbelief. I want to grow in my belief. I don't want to believe like the demons believe. I don't want to believe like the devil believes, who knows facts and believes those facts. I want to worship the God who would humble himself to serve me. He is our Lord. He is our God. You are our Savior. And belief brings blessing. How are we going to believe? We are going to believe. Faith comes by hearing. Belief comes by hearing. And hearing by the word. And so we cling to your word this morning. We love your word because it's how we come to love the Savior. God, may your word just reverberate in this room every Sunday. And then as it reverberates in this room, may it reverberate in our hearts and our minds and our, our lips as we go out to lunch with one another and hang out together. May your word reverberate in our church so that we would believe every word that you've said and we would be blessed by it. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand.